Okay, so far in our study of Jesus in Matthew, um, we focused on Jesus as the King, the perspective in which Matthew presents Him in his gospel. And I think most of you uh, have been here for the last couple of weeks when we've uh, talked about that. Uh, we see Him as the King worshipped by human rulers at His birth, as the wise men were led to, to do so by the star sent to them by God. So you know, the, the, I'm answering the question, how do we know that Matthew is portraying Jesus as you know, a king? Well, right from the beginning, you see that he's being treated as a king. The wise men, these were high officials from another nation. They come, they bow down, they worship him. You know, the, the only, only a king would receive that type of, uh, that type of homage from these type of uh, people. We also witnessed his rulership over the dark spiritual forces led by Satan as he defeats the devil in his attempt at tempting him or testing him in the desert. Again, the king of the spirit, the king of the spirit world. And then our last glimpse is of the sovereign ruler Jesus being ministered to by mighty angelic beings, showing us his rulership over the entire spiritual world, both good and bad. I mean, who else is going to minister to him in the desert but the, but the angels? So in the following section of his book, Matthew is now going to turn his attention to the kingdom. Remember we said you know, the, the king and his kingdom, that's the title of our, of our lesson. So we've been looking at the king part. Now we're going to look at the kingdom part of uh, that title. This kingdom is going to be explained and described under the heading Sermon on the Mount. So you're wondering, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's the description of the kingdom that belongs to the king. Uh, so because of time and location that Jesus the king begins speaking about his, about his kingdom. Now the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter five of Matthew and it goes all the way to chapter seven. And in this sermon or this lesson, Jesus explains the attitude, the character, the impact, and the relationships that those people who make up the kingdom have. Again, if you're wondering, what is, all, what, what is going on in, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? That's the kingdom. That's where we live. You and I, we live in the kingdom. And this is what happens in the kingdom. This is how things work in the kingdom. Now, his kingdom can be made up of one person or a million people together because it exists not on a place, not in a map, it exists in the heart, right? Jesus said, you know, I'm near you, I'm in you. So Jesus' kingdom exists wherever his will is being done. That's the definition of the kingdom. So if his will is being done in your heart, then His kingdom is within you. If His will is being done within the heart of a thousand or a billion people, then His kingdom belongs or exists among them. Okay, so that explains what the kingdom of Jesus is. But it doesn't explain what it looks like or how it acts. And that's what Genesis, uh, Genesis Matthew 5, 6, and 7 the Sermon on the Mount, that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It kind of describes this kingdom in a physical way. So in the Sermon on the Mount, the king answers the question, how do people act when they 
uh, have your kingdom within them. Or another way of saying it, when this kingdom is established in one or a thousand hearts, what difference does it make? Or how do we recognize the kingdom? So Jesus answers these questions about His kingdom by comparing and describing life in the kingdom to life in the world. That's how He, that's how he kind of gives perspective to it. This is the way things work in the world in a certain situation. And then this is how things work in the kingdom in that very same situation. And that's how he explains and gives a measure to the kingdom. Um, now these areas that everyone could relate to were the following. They're actually areas that he discusses and here they are. First of all, in the kingdom of Jesus, what constitutes happiness? You know, we know what constitutes happiness like in the world, but in the kingdom, what constitutes happiness? In the kingdom of Jesus, what is one's attitude towards the law? We know what the attitude of the people in the world towards the law, but what is it in the, in the kingdom? In the kingdom of Jesus, what is our relationship with God like? In the kingdom of Jesus, what is our relationship with other people like? And then finally, in the kingdom of Jesus, uh, uh, well, I, actually I should put it this way, how does one find their way into the kingdom of Jesus? Those are the five things being discussed in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we keep this in mind, if we, if we realize this is what Jesus is answering, it really helps us understand in context what is being taught. All right? So with these teachings, he was describing the nature and the experience one could expect in the kingdom over which he was king. So we begin in our lesson today, we're not going to be able to do all these five, but in our lesson today, I think we're going to try anyways. We're going to start with the first one. What constitutes real happiness in the kingdom of Jesus? So we read Matthew chapter 5 verses 1-4. Let's start. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be like God. Let's keep going. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
So we call these the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes. The word Beatitude does not appear in the New Testament as such. It's a Latin word, a Latin translation, Beatitudo, for the word blessed, which actually means happy or joyful or blessed. Now there are nine of these Beatitudes and all of them begin the same way. They make a promise, they deal with spiritual things, and they're directed at people in the kingdom. Now, this is a key point here. The things that he's talking about here are directed at people in the kingdom, because they make no sense to people who are not in the kingdom. All right? Then you might think, well, yeah, sure, that's a no-brainer, everybody knows that. Well, keep that in mind as you keep working your way through the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to people about the kingdom, how the kingdom operates. Okay? Now this particular thing, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on and so forth, uh, this was a, um, uh, a style of teaching that the rabbis usually had in introducing their lesson. Uh, they would introduce their lesson with a question or with a paradox. Today we call them icebreakers, you know, icebreaker questions to kind of get discussion going. All right? So the Beatitudes themselves, they were contradictions which challenged the preconceived notions of life and of philosophy. For example, um, the spiritually poor will attain the riches of heaven. Again, kind of a con the poor will become rich. Uh, mourners will be comforted. The gentle will gain the earth. You see the contradiction? The gentle, the meek, right? They'll gain the earth. But in, in normal thinking, it's not the gentle or the meek that inherit the earth or that gain the earth. It's the powerful, right? Look around in our society. Look around in our world. Who are the ones that control the world? Well, they're not the meek and lowly. They're the powerful, right? So you see the contradiction here that he's, that he's putting forth. The thirsty will be satisfied, and so on and so forth. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives insight into the spiritual reality that operates in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are spiritual principles in which we in the kingdom operate. Again, for example, those who bear persecution in the name of Christ will rejoice. Somebody says, well, wait a minute, in the world, you know, if you're persecuted, if you're thrown in jail, if you're cuffed and beaten, you're not rejoicing, you're demanding your rights. You're calling on your people to march in the streets to get you free you know, and join the struggle. That's what's going on in the world. But in, in the kingdom, those who bear persecution in the name of Christ, they do rejoice. I mean, it's not the normal reaction for those who are persecuted, for sure. Usually the reaction, as I mentioned, is fear or anger, desire for revenge. But in the kingdom, the spiritual laws work in such a way that those who suffer for Christ actually rejoice in this. And you know that, those of you who, are, you know, those of you who have lived for a time as Christians, something happens to you, something that is unjust, something that's not fair and you actually have the presence of mind and strength of spirit to answer in a Christian way. In other words, you, know, you don't fight back, you don't push back, you just you absorb the, the hurt or whatever and you forgive rather than seek revenge. You know, those times where you, you have the spiritual presence of mind to do those things. 
What's the next thing that happens when you are praying? Well, I think the next thing that happens is a kind of a peace that overcomes you, a kind of a quiet joy that says, wow, I really am growing in the spirit. You know, five years ago, this would have happened to me. Boy, I would have been raging and I would have done this and I would have done that. And now I just kind of absorbed the thing and took a deep breath. I actually even prayed for the person who did this to me. You know, there's a, a kind of a quiet, peaceful spirit that comes over us when we recognize that we're actually growing in the spirit of, the spirit of Christ. And so disciples, in the kingdom, influenced by these principles, are distinctive. They're like salt as a flavor. They're like light to the eye um, that can be distinguished. So Jesus is saying in the kingdom, true happiness is distinctive because people in the kingdom are made happy by things that don't necessarily make people in the world happy. Okay. The distinctiveness of the disciples, characterized by the principles set forth in the Beatitudes, is what makes them stand apart from others and what characterizes the kingdom. You know, like saltiness of salt or brightness of, bright, of light. The happiness of those in the kingdom is based on God's will being accomplished through and in them regardless of the consequences. So this distinctiveness ultimately perceived in good lives and good works, not only characterizes the kingdom, but it reveals the true nature of God to fallen man. What a great thing. Is it not a great thing when you successfully witness for Christ in some way? Whether it be, how do you feel when a, a person you know who is not a, a believer, um, an opportunity comes by for you to share your faith or share your personal story of faith, how you came to faith, and they listen, and they say, hmm, you've given me a lot to think about, you know? and, and well, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me, you know? and then you know, whatever, you go on your way. How do you feel after that? I don't know about you, but my, my heart is just bursting. I want to thank God, oh Lord, thank you, you gave me a chance to share my faith. Lord, thank you. You gave me a chance to actually serve you in a way I know pleases you. Which one of your unbelieving friends goes around thinking like that? None of them. And so the idea, the Beatitudes describes the nature and the, the desires and the way things work in the kingdom. What makes you happy in the kingdom, the point is here, is very different from what makes you happy in the world. All right? In the Beatitudes, we see man as he is in his regenerated state. That's what the Beatitudes describe. What does the regenerated man or woman look like? How does the regenerated man or woman act? What does the regenerated man or woman desire most in life? How does this person look like in the world? Jesus is giving that description in um, the Beatitudes. Okay, so I said, you know, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us uh, what people are like, if you wish, and what makes them happy in the kingdom. Second thing is, in the kingdom, how do people relate to the law? 
Okay? Let's read uh, just verses 17 to 20 here. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember now, remember I said to you, be very careful, understand, he's talking to people in the kingdom. And here he reiterates right here, he says, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to people in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, uh, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, the key verse in the discourse here is uh, in verse 20. And it reveals that the higher righteousness of the disciples is the quality that distinguishes them and makes them useful in the kingdom and also sets them apart from those who are in the world. There are a lot of things that are not necessarily immoral, but they are worldly. And the thing that separates the people from the kingdom, uh, from the people in the world, is that the people in the kingdom strive not to be worldly. Okay? If you're, if you're, if you're, um, if you're just uh, uh, um, going by the letter of the law, you'll try to avoid anything that is commanded that you ought not to do. You know, some people say, well, it doesn't say not to do that. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says, in the kingdom, people are recognized as not really being worldly. You can, there's a difference to them. That's what sets them apart. And then he goes on, you know, the section from 517 to 48 makes a series of comparisons putting forth what they had been taught about the law of Moses by their teachers. You know, he says, you have heard that it was said. That's what they've been taught by their rabbis okay, concerning the law. And then he lays beside these teachings the essence and the spirit of the law given by the one who origin, originally gave the law, which is Jesus Himself, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 4. So Jesus comments on five areas of teaching in which they had received instructions concerning the law, puts that on one side, and then next to it He puts down, okay, now here's the essence of the law. In other words, you guys think you know the law because you know, your teachers told you this, well, then let me tell you what the law really says. Let me really give you the spirit of the law, the essence of the law, and he lays that next to it. And that's what's going on here. Okay? So he talks about uh, murder here in verse 21. Let's see. Uh, yes, Jesus is teaching on the difference between applied law, that's the, the Jews, and the spirit of the law, what God intended with the rule. So he talks about murder, first of all. The unjustified taking of life was wrong. But Jesus says that the crime at the beginning, at the very beginning, uh, begins with anger and resentment towards others and that keeping the law 
didn't mean I refrain from killing somebody. The spirit of the law said that that's the end point. The beginning of the killing starts with anger and resentment in one's heart. Okay? So the teachers taught that if you avoided the extreme, you obeyed the whole law. And Jesus was demonstrating to them, no. No, that's, that's hypocritical. Just because you, you avoid the extreme. You know, in other words, you can go all the way to the edge you know, and, and avoid the extreme. You've managed to keep the whole law. And he's saying to them, you guys think you're keeping the law just because you didn't kill anybody? You think you're righteous because you've kept the law? You've avoided the extreme? Let me show you what the essence of the law is, the spirit of the law. And he lays that down. And he says, the law not to kill essentially begins with not harboring anger in your heart not harboring resentment in your heart. If that's what you have done, then you've broken the law not to kill. You see the, the idea? Everything else follows this same thing. He, he talks about adultery. They had been taught, the Jews, had been taught to manipulate the law in order to justify their adultery with easy divorce. Their idea was, hey, I've kept the law. Are you kidding me? I, you know, I got rid of my wife. In those days, the women couldn't divorce the men. The men divorced the women. You know, they would say, hey, I've kept, I'm, my heart is pure. You know, I got rid of my wife. I gave her a bill of divorcement. I did things in the legal fashion. I've kept the law. You know, and I, you know, I got rid of her and I got me a new model. And, I, and I'm good. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus again situates the true sin as impurity of heart and the real keeping the law as an effort to control one's body, not to manipulate the law in order to gain an easy divorce. Again, you think you're righteous just because you gave your wife a, you know, a certificate of divorce? You think that's what righteousness is? Let me tell you what righteousness is. Righteousness is keeping your heart pure sexually. That's, that's righteousness. All right, keeps going. Vows, talks about vows. They had learned a very complex manner of making selective vows which they felt that they could break when it was inconvenient. Again, feeling that they were righteous. But Jesus reveals that vows are not necessary when a person has an honest heart. Real obedience required an honest heart. Let your yes be yes, your no, you know, keep your word. Okay? In other words, what they were doing is finding loopholes, you know, like lawyers do. I'm not condemning lawyers, I'm just saying lawyers try to find loopholes in the law, the tax law, the compliance law for environmental things, the, this law and that law, right? They find loopholes in the law and if it's legal, it's legal. Well, the Jews, through the agency of the rabbis, were finding, quote, loopholes in God's law. They wanted it both ways. They wanted to make vows and look righteous and holy, but at the same time, when those vows became inconvenient, well, they would find loopholes in getting out of those vows. Jesus simply kind of sets the bar back to where it is or it was originally when the law was given. How about justice? Their system relied on the law as a tool for restitution and many times a cover for revenge. Jesus taught them that the higher principle of the law was mercy and justice. I think you get the idea. Humanity, 
They used the law to build a wall around themselves and keep others out. They were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles, but they had you know, so uh, manipulated the law in such a way that uh, they were uh, keeping God's law simply by lo loving the ones closest to them, their family, their people, their tribe. And Jesus taught them um, or showed them that one or our purpose of the law was to reveal God's goodness to man, that to be like the giver of laws, this was the goal of God giving laws. They had to love their enemies. You want to keep the law of humanity, of loving others? They had reduced it down to loving others that were like yourself. Jewish family, tribe, Jesus says, no, no, this, this law includes your enemies. So what he was doing is just stripping away the hypocrisy, period. He wasn't changing the law, he was stripping away the hypocrisy of what was going on. And so in the kingdom, there exists both a true understanding of the essence of God's law and a sincere desire to abide by the spirit of the law. In the kingdom, basically, Jesus was showing them that there's no game playing. We don't play games with God's word. We don't play games with God's laws. God's word, God's will, God's law is life itself. And there is a true hunger to do what is right. And that was the basic difference he was trying to show. In the kingdom of heaven, those who dwell in the kingdom of heaven they want with all their heart to do what is right according to God's will. It's probably the prayer that is sent up to God most often people in the kingdom. Lord, please just show me what you want me to do. Or Lord, I know what you want me to do. Please enable me. Help me to do it. I want to do it. Lord, you don't have to beat me up. I beat myself up when I'm not able to do what I want to do. What, what does Paul talk about in Romans 7? If there was a guy beating himself up, it was him. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? I mean, the words may change, but how many of us have had exactly the same feeling? I know what I want to do. I actually see my better self every day. I see my better self, but oh, I don't. Sometimes I have a glorious moment, sometimes. I wish I could just freeze that moment and stay there, but nah, the flesh takes over soon enough. And so he's saying the difference between people in the kingdom, people in the world, is that people in the world looking for the loopholes in the law to do what they want to do and feel good about themselves. The people in the kingdom understand what the essence and the spirit of the law is and hunger and thirst to do that thing. You know, it's like we say in the kingdom, um, uh, I know I'm not perfect, but I want to be. <laughs> I want to be perfect. What's killing me is that I'm not. It's not false humility. I'm not trying to be you know, uh, humble. No, I, I want to be perfect. With all my heart I want to be perfect. And the fact that I'm not is the single most difficult, difficult thing to deal with in, in my spiritual life. Now here's the problem. People read the Sermon on the Mount 
and they make a rule book out of this passage thinking that in order to be in the kingdom you had to perfectly obey the standard that Jesus speaks about here. And what they're doing is they're replacing the old law with the new law. You know, the old law in the, in, in, in the Old Testament, right? the, law, the food laws and all the, the Ten Commandments and all of that, they simply replace all of that with the Sermon on the Mount and they make that their new law. And falling short of anything in there, in that, in the Sermon on the Mount becomes you know, sinfulness, a reason to be lost. What they misunderstand is that through the grace of God obtained by Jesus on the cross, we are considered perfect, listen now, we are considered perfect according to the kingdom standards outlined here. And we are considered perfect according to this standard because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Not by perfect obedience, which was impossible to the old law and would be impossible if we make this the new law. That's the thing that, remember I said he's talking to people in the kingdom? This is the standard in the kingdom. We don't have to be afraid of knowing what the standard of righteousness is. We don't have to be afraid of knowing it. And we don't have to be afraid of knowing it because God is revealing what perfection looks like, the perfection He freely gives us through faith in Jesus Christ. What we cannot do through self-will, in other words, be perfect as it is outlined here, what we cannot do through self-will, God freely gives us through faith. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news. That's the good news. You know, the ones who mourn, he says, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What do you think he's talking about? The, the people in the kingdom, what are they mourning about? Their lost granddad or grandma or spouse? No. The people in the kingdom are mourning the fact that they see perfection but cannot achieve it through willpower. The, the thing I've just been describing for the last 10 minutes, the experience of every Christian. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Why? They'll be comforted. Why? How? Through the knowledge of the gospel. The gospel tells us, you see this beautiful thing here? I'm giving it to you through faith. I'm imputing it to you through faith. In other words, when God looks at the members of His kingdom, this is the perfection that He sees. Not because the people in the kingdom have achieved it, but because the king of the kingdom has achieved it for his subjects by dying on the cross. That's why when we you know, did the renovation in this building here, uh, I insisted that we have, well behind the screen there, that cross there. And the reason for that is the cross is the center of our faith in our life. And when we come to worship publicly, those few times a week, I wanted the cross always to be a central idea in our minds and in our hearts. When, when Jesus teaches, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is what he's talking about. The righteousness 
is the perfection that he describes in these passages concerning the law. If this is what you hunger for, you will be given it through faith in Him and thus be satisfied. This is the cause of your blessedness. This is the cause of your happiness. That you hungered for something you could not achieve for yourself and that Jesus gives it to you because you believe in Him. And so the kingdom dwellers understand and perfectly obey the true law through faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, I don't know if I've got it. No, I don't have it here. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30. If you have your Bible, just go over there. I don't have a slide for that. Listen to what he says. He says, but by his doing, who's doing? Jesus is doing. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord. What is Paul talking about? People were boasting that they were righteous because they were keeping the law, their own idea of what the law was. Jesus comes along and shows them the true nature of the law. Okay? And then here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, Paul reminds them, Jesus became for us, what? Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, the thing that we want. He did that for us and gave it to us through faith. And so the kingdom dwellers, as I said, understand and perfectly obey the true law through faith in Jesus. All right, real quick. In the kingdom, what really brings happiness is obeying the true essence of the law and through faith in Jesus, uh, this is possible. Okay, so now in, in chapter six, uh, in the kingdom of God, what are relationships like? Well, first of all, he teaches them how those in the kingdom exercise their relationship with God. How do we do that? How do we exercise our relationship with God? Well, he talks about that. He says, first of all, practice your goodness towards God with the view of pleasing Him and not men. In other words, how do I live in the kingdom? How do, how do, how do I have a relationship with God in the kingdom? And so whatever good you do, remember, you're doing it for God to try to please Him. Pray to God in order to communicate with Him, not to impress others with your piety. Trust in God to provide all of your physical and spiritual needs. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the world. And so he encourages them in understanding the nature of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, the quality of life that they should strive for as salt and light, you know, the essence of law. And now he guides them into the practical ways of how to have a meaningful relationship with God as opposed to the various religious or philosophical solutions offered by the world, even offered by the rabbis. Okay, number four, your relationship with others. The elements of a proper relationship with God are followed in you know, the Sermon on the Mount by the key idea to a blessed relationship between people in the kingdom. So verse 12, it says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So how do people in the kingdom of God treat one another? 
We've looked at how do, they, you know, how do they deal with God through prayer and trust and so on and so forth. Okay, how do they deal with each other? Okay. So upon this principle is based all the teaching in the law and prophets on how we must treat each other in order to bless ourselves and to please God and maintain the kingdom within and among ourselves. Note the difference on how the world treats its members and the results. Is that how, you know, like in the Ukraine, you know, this is the, you know, the crisis of today. You know, uh, this video could be played in a year from now, it'd be another crisis, it's always the same. How are people over in that nation treating each other? Over what? Over the language they speak and the culture and the customs that they, they will practice, over the flag that will fly over them. How are they treating each other? Well, they're killing each other. That's, that's what they're doing. There isn't any forgiveness going on. And now you know, the, the real tragedy, you know, 300 innocent people just happen to be flying overhead and are murdered, you know? uh, maybe not even murdered, but maybe a crazy accident. So Jesus says, in the kingdom, things are much different. I treat you as I myself would want to be treated. So simple. We don't need a long book of, of a law. The way I treat you is the way I would like to be, I would like to be treated. Solomon says, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. I, I want everybody here to memorize that. It is to a man or woman. It is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. If we put that to our minds, if we put that passage in our hearts, it would help us exercise exactly this business here. When we make a mistake and when we talk out of turn and when we say something stupid and when we are you know, more aggressive than we need to be or whatever, we've not treated the other person right, wouldn't we want that other person to have that passage of scripture in their heart? That it is to a person's glory to overlook an offense? This is how it works in the kingdom of God. And then the final thing, I need to move quickly here in verses 13, having set forth the, practica, the parameters rather of the kingdom, its inner workings, Jesus explains the way to enter into the kingdom and into a relationship with the King and the Father. So verse 13 to 15 he says, enter through, enter what? The kingdom. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. So this is the invitation to his audience. Number one, enter by the narrow gate of Christ. Now later on, at his crucifixion, the disciples will understand just how narrow and difficult this gate is. The only way to God and the kingdom of Christ is through a response to the gospel of Christ, repentance and baptism. Then he says, beware the false prophets who produce neither the teachings nor the fruit of the kingdom of Christ. This is how you're going to know them. Neither the fruit nor the teachings. The true prophets have the fruit and they have the teachings. So don't be fooled by those who produce some sort of fruit but do not have the teaching. You know, there are some religious groups out there that are very moral 
and very high-minded. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't drink coffee, they, you know, they believe in you know, family values and so on and so forth. And most people, you know, there are commercials on TV, look how fresh and wholesome we are, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then when you actually look at their teachings, what they're teaching is that Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus is not the Savior. Jesus is not divine. He's saying be very careful. They have to have both the fruit and the teachings. If one or the other are missing, they're false. And then finally he says, don't just hear the word of Christ. Act upon them in order to enter in. You know, in um, Matthew um, uh, 7, he says, uh, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribed. Don't just hear the words, do them. You know, he said, many are called, but few become the chosen ones who belong to the kingdom. A lot of people heard of what he said that day and were amazed, but few entered through the narrow gate of the cross into the kingdom of the king. So he's talking about the kingdom to people of the kingdom. It doesn't just mean only people of the kingdom were hearing him. You know, there was a crowd there, but there were only some who were understanding what he was saying. And then this final passage, he invites the others. If they want to be in this kingdom he's talking about, this is how you come in the narrow gate, the narrow way. So Jesus ends a comprehensive description of His heavenly kingdom as it would appear in a physical context again among, among men. And that hasn't changed. This is the kingdom that we live in. This is the spiritual reality that we exist in. This is how we act. If we're ever in doubt how we should act, go back and take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. But by all means, don't make a new law out of it. Remember, this is what perfection looks like. This is what God has given us through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's all the time we have. Thank you very much for your attention.